Good morning, Lagos. Good afternoon, Colombo, and good evening, Phnom Penh. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss how Sudan ended up on the brink of civil war and why Saudi Arabia welcomed Hamas. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm uh, I'm very well, Ethan. But uh, I'm afraid there's no time for our usual genial banter today because we've got two yeah. very big, important stories that we want to dig into. Right? You, you've got that right. So we'll start off. Uh, we've been closely monitoring the situation in Sudan in recent days, and the absolute latest that we're hearing at the time of this recording, it's uh, late afternoon Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, uh, is that the two warring factions have agreed to a 24-hour ceasefire that started at 6 p.m. local time. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm not sure if you saw these reports as well, but I've just read some a few things that um that say despite the ceasefire that you just mentioned, there is still fighting going on. The ceasefire doesn't seem to be holding um too well. Um of course, this all comes after th- more than 3 days of fighting, uh which started early on Saturday morning and was centered in and around the capital city of, of Khartoum. Uh, the most up-to-date estimates that I've seen are about 180 people have been killed in the clashes, which is obviously horrific. Um, but both sides of the conflict promise to fight things out to the end. So if this ceasefire doesn't hold, which it, you know there's early indications that it's not, I suspect that the situation might get a lot worse. To the listeners, apologies if we're, we're talking a little bit faster than usual, but there's just so much to get to here. So, so John, catch us up to speed. Who are these two factions? What are they fighting about? Right. Well, I think we need to just take a quick step back. Um, So Sudan was ruled for 30 years by a guy called Omar al-Bashir, infamous for war crimes and, you know, really bad kind of guy. Um, But in 2019, uh, he was deposed by the military and essentially replaced by a civilian government after a series of pro-democracy protests against that military rule. But in 2021, that civilian government was deposed by the military, sort of the military getting involved again, uh, and a junta led by a general named Abdel Fattah al-Burhan took charge. Um, He promised after taking over that over the next couple of years, the country would return once again to civilian rule. That process was really supposed to start in earnest this month with a handover back to civilian rule, but it kept getting delayed. All the deadlines that would, you know, for for the handover would come and go. Um, without much getting done to return Sudan to civilian rule. What was what was causing that delay? Well, the fighting we're seeing is between two factions of Sudan's armed forces. Uh, on one side, we've got the military, the official Sudanese military, and on the other, we have this paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Force, or RSF. The, the RSF is interesting. It's led by a general named Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. And I'm going to call him uh, Hamedi, which is his kind of commonly referred to name because the names get a little bit difficult after a while. Um, but but Hamedi is, is reported to be one of the richest men in Sudan. Um, the Rapid Support support Forces, the RSF, grew out of the infamous Janjaweed paramilitary forces that fought on the Sudanese government's side uh, during the war in Darfur. Um, and they committed all sorts of atrocities and crimes against humanity. And, and Hamedi was the leader of that, of that uh, Janjaweed militia. So back when General al Burhan, the head of Sudanese uh, army, the military force, when he retook power as uh, Sudan's de facto leader, he decided to buy Hamedi and the RSF's loyalty. He made Hamedi his deputy leader. um, And the idea was kind of sort of to create some stability and coup-proof himself, if you will. 
Um, problem was, what he actually created was an active, well-resourced and powerful paramilitary force outside the state's direct control, almost like a second army. Whoops. Yeah, right, exactly. Not a great idea. Um, and, and, and the result is obviously no civilian leadership will or can accept the situation. Um, so as part of the transition to democracy, Al-Burhan and Hamedi have been negotiating a way to kind of incorporate the rapid su- support forces, RSF, into the uh, Sudanese military as one force with a single command structure. So that's kind of why, why we're here. And that's that's when the fighting started. Exactly. It sounds like neither general was particularly keen on giving up the power and wealth that they'd managed to accumulate over the last few years. And what has the fighting looked like so far? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's been more brutal than, than the casualty count might suggest. Both sides are very well armed, um, and the military has fighter jets and helicopters that have been circling Khartoum, which is a city of five million civilians, let's not forget. that's a, It's a pretty big city. Um, and, and the military has been conducting airstrikes in civilian areas. We've also heard of attacks, famously attacks against NGO workers and diplomats. Um, Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, said that a U.S. diplomatic convoy was fired upon and the EU ambassador to the uh, to Sudan was assaulted inside his home in Khartoum, though luckily he was fairly, uh, he escaped fairly unscathed. I imagine then the international community has a lot to, to say about this then, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really difficult one to kind of unpick. I think generally countries would like to see the fighting stop, or at least they're saying that in public, right? Um, but there seems to be some dividing lines. Uh, Egypt, for instance, is a close ally of General Al-Bahan, the leader of the military, uh, and Egypt actually sent some troops to support the Sudanese military. Those troops were actually captured by the RSF um, and are now under negotiations to release them. Meanwhile, on the other hand, some Gulf states like Saudi Arabia, they appear to prefer the, the RSF under Hamedi. And Ethan, because no podcast would ever be complete without mentioning Russia... Yes, Russia seems to have their fingerprints on this mess as well. The infamous, uh, the infamous Wagner Group began training and sharing intelligence with the RSF in 2017. Uh, and in return, Wagner got gold mining concessions in Darfur uh, and other areas in, in Sudan. So that's not just speculation, by the way. Uh, a Sudanese mining firm called Moreau Gold was sanctioned by the US and EU in 2020 for its ties to uh, the Wagner Group. Why? Why would Russia be picking sides in this? I mean, what's the what's the geopolitical angle, as there always is? Yeah, well, I mean that's right. There is, and it's and it's important to keep that in mind when you kind of think about these these types of issues. And on on this one, I think the larger geopolitical angle is kind of twofold. Firstly, from the Russian side, it's it's trying to use its influence across Africa to fund its war effort in Ukraine. You know, its economy has gone down the toilet and it's struggling to fund its war machine. Uh, for example, an investigative report by CNN in 2022 uncovered at least 16 Russian gold smuggling flights out of Sudan to Russia. So, you know, they're trying to take the gold out of Sudan and, and, fund, and fund the war in Ukraine. The second angle here, I think, is that more generally, Sudan is a, a large uh, and strategically important African country. It sits on the Nile River. It has access to the Red Sea. It's near the infamous Grand Ethiopia. Renaissance Dam, which we don't have time to go into, uh, but it has general, you know, it has gold, has other mining and natural resources, and as we've discussed, a, a pretty powerful military. So, you know, a, in that kind of situation, plenty of countries will be seeing this as an opportunity to increase their influence in the region by supporting the winning side to help them win and then curry favour with the government. And in the meantime, John, a lot of innocent people stuck in the middle. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it's certainly not over yet, not by a long shot. So it's one to watch. 
Today's show is sponsored by Babbel. Going on vacation is great, but exploring the world like a local is even better. And not speaking the language is no longer an excuse. Babbel offers 10-minute lessons designed by real language experts focused on conversational skills in 14 languages so you can learn a language in three weeks and board your next flight abroad with confidence. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. Next up, John, we're talking about the rapidly changing geopolitical dynamic in the Middle East. Uh, So what's the story? Yeah, another complex story, Ethan. Uh, It's a a busy Wednesday. Uh, So bear with me as we try to get to the core of it. Now, most people might remember the surprise news in early March that Saudi Arabia and Iran had settled a seven-year diplomatic beef that they had uh, and agreed to reopen their embassies in in, uh, the respective countries and, and to restart their diplomatic relations. I think it was pretty surprising news, uh, not least because Saudi and Iran have a long-standing dispute. Uh, they've got serious disagreements on religion, politics, each other's respective role in the Middle East more generally. So I think lots of analysts suspected that the rapprochement was more symbolic than representative of kind of any deep geopolitical shift. And and has it been more symbolic or you know, is something really happening here? Yeah, well, let me caveat that with saying it's only been six weeks since that news broke in what has been a bad 50-odd-year relationship. So very, very early days. But it looks like there might have been some substance to that rapprochement. For example, just this week, Iran invited the Saudi king, King uh, Salman, to pay them a visit. And uh, Saudi Arabia hosted leaders from the Iranian-supported Palestinian uh, Palestinian militant group Hamas, as well as Mahmoud Abbas, who is the leader of the uh, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. This is a pretty big deal. I mean, first of all, Saudi and Hamas haven't seen eye to eye since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip from Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah party in a bloody five-day civil war back in 2007. So there are some real changes here. I I imagine Israel won't be thrilled about these two groups getting back together. I think that's fair to say, Ethan, (laughs) and for a lot of reasons. Primarily, I think Israel won't be happy that Saudi Arabia, you know, the region's wealthiest country and de facto leader of the Arab world, They won't be happy that it's legitimizing a group that it sees as a terrorist group dedicated to Israel's destruction. And the second thing that Israel will be disappointed by is that it's made diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia a centerpiece of its own foreign policy, really its core goal. Um, And that's not only because Israel wants the economic benefits that come with being a Saudi friend, but also because it wants, or at least it wanted, to solicit Saudi Arabia's help in balancing Iran and Iran's proxy militias across the Middle East. Like Hamas. Exactly, like Hamas. And like, don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of secret cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia that goes on behind the scenes, but any public declaration of friendship seems fairly unlikely for the time being. And backtracking a second, you mentioned that Hamas and and Fatah, uh, Mahmoud Abbas's party, fought a war in 2007. So I'd imagine this meeting in Saudi Arabia is big news for, for that relationship too, right? Well, it it might be. Uh, I don't want to oversell it because these two groups are bitter rivals um, and every effort at reconciliation has failed in the past. So, you know, only a fool predicts anything with uh, those two with any certainty. In fact, I think in many ways, the two groups fight with each other as much or more than they fight with Israel these days. That's made the Israel-Palestinian conflict much more complex because neither Hamas nor Fatah can guarantee any deal that each of them sign up to, if you get my meaning. Um, so Saudi Arabia sees reconciliation between Hamas and Fatah 
to get that those two factions on the same page and acting as a, a unified Palestinian front, for want of a better phrase, um, Saudi Arabia sees that as the only way towards a two-state solution. Uh, on the other hand, part of that reconciliation would probably be that Fatah has to hold elections in the West Bank, which it hasn't done since 2006, because I think it's pretty terrified that Hamas would win those elections, right? Um, and obviously, if Hamas did win those elections, that would destabilize the region even more. So... I think, Ethan, you'll be shocked to hear me say that I'm not really sure where any of this is heading. We want answers, John. Gosh darn it. I don't have them. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. One of Tunisia's top opposition leaders, Rahed Ganucci, was arrested on Monday for apparently making inciting statements against the government. The 81-year-old Ganucci was a vocal critic of President Kais Sayed, who has clamped down on dissent since taking power in 2019. Slovakia plans to join Hungary and Poland in banning Ukrainian grain in order to protect their domestic agriculture industry, which charges higher prices. The EU said such unilateral moves were unacceptable. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, it's official. We've got a new favorite world flag, and it's not even from a country. So check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see which one it is. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.